This week, I'm putting a capstone on a series that we've been in for the last several weeks that we've called Divine Direction. And throughout this series, we've been in the book of Hebrews, looking at chapter 11 uh, primarily, which lists out prominent figures in the Old Testament who were known for their faith. They were known for some significant contribution that they made to God's story through history. And this week, we're going to take a look at a passage um, that lifts out a challenging dynamic. Um, in some ways, one way to look at it is this could be one of the more challenging passages in all of Scripture. So um, we're going to tackle that today, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. So as is our custom here at New Beginnings, I invite you to stand, if you're able to, to honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 34. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 34. So the writer has listed out a number of different uh, figures across uh, Israel's history. And then the writer writes, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. You may be seated. God, we ask that your spirit would be here and you would speak to us this day. God, we know that we're tackling a very challenging topic, um, but God, the, the power of your word is that you reveal yourself to us through what has been written. And so we ask that that would be true this day, that we would gain a deeper insight into your heart of love and grace and redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Hebrews 11 is a really unique passage of scripture. It's been called at different times the hall of fame of the Bible um, or the hall of faith. Sometimes the people who are listed here in this passage are called the heroes of faith. But the reality is that some of these heroes come with very challenging backstories and perhaps Jephthah most of all. And he's the one that we're going to look at today. So we are introduced to Jephthah in the book of Judges. Uh, his story is told in Judges chapter 10 through 12. And, Jesus, uh, and Jephthah comes in a particular context in Israel's history. Um, it's after Israel has been brought um, out of Egypt. It's after they've gone through the wilderness and they've brought, been brought into the promised land um, under Joshua's leadership. Joshua has died, and so now the people of Israel are dwelling um, in the promised land, but all around them are enemies, uh, different foreign peoples that are living in the neighboring territories. They include the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, a whole laundry list that basically makes it an extremely tough neighborhood. So in the book of Judges, a pattern develops. The people of Israel are there. They're supposed to be worshiping God. But because they're living in such close proximity to all these other peoples, they start to worship the other people's gods instead of their own. 
And these are gods like Baal, like Asherah, like Chemosh, like Molech. And in the process of worshiping these other gods, and in the process of encountering these other nations, some of which are more powerful militarily than Israel is, they become oppressed. They become ruled by these other nations. And then in those moments when they are in bondage, where they're suffering, they call out to God, and God raises up a deliverer, a judge, a leader, and that person leads the people of Israel, usually wins a very visible military victory, and Israel is free for a while, and then the pattern and the cycle repeats again. This is basically what we see over and over again in Judges. And so Jephthah is one of these judges, and we actually know quite a bit about Jephthah from Scripture. We know that he had a reputation as a mighty warrior, Um, His father was named for the region where he lived, so his father's name was Gilead. Um, But Jephthah was an illegitimate child. So the Bible tells us that his father uh, lay with a prostitute, Jephthah was born. But because Jephthah was illegitimate, the sons of Gilead from his wife drove Jephthah out of the family because they didn't want Jephthah to have any part of the inheritance. So Jephthah is kicked out, and then the Bible tells us that basically a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So he's kind of this uh, feared outlaw leader in the neighborhood of Gilead. And there comes a time where that region of Israel, Gilead, was in a war against the Ammonites. The Ammonites were winning. They were militarily more powerful. They were plundering the cities of Gilead. And so the people of Gilead become so desperate that they go and they seek Jephthah out. Basically, they find the strongest fighter they know and they ask for help. So this process of finding Jephthah and asking for help is actually somewhat interesting in all of these cycles and judges. Uh, In most of the other cycles that we see, with Gideon, for example, Samson, for example, there's actually a lot more interaction between God and the deliverer. So um, a lot of times God will send an angel and and give a vision to the deliverer. And other times um, God will speak to the parents and tell them there's something special about this child that's going to come forth. In this instance, the account in Judges basically indicates that the people were desperate. They had no idea what to to do, and so they basically go out and they seek out Jephthah. Now, Jephthah's already been kicked to the curb, and so when the people come to him and they're like, will you please help us? Jephthah sees an opportunity, and he says, if I help you and I win, you make me the ruler over Gilead. And the people are so desperate that they say, okay, we got a deal, we'll do it. So um, after that, there's an account in Judges 11, and it basically describes the heart of what probably lands Jephthah to be mentioned in Hebrews 11. Because after Jephthah is now leading the people, he sends a message to the Ammonite king. 
And this message is amazingly eloquent and powerful. It basically captures the heart of everything God wants his people to know, the kind of confidence that he wants them to have. And it culminates with this declaration in Judges 11, verses 23 20, and 24. And so this is what Jephthah says to the Ammonite king. And he says, Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, he's, he, he drove the Amorites out to give us this land, what right do you have, Ammonites, to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. And so this statement is full of faith, right? Basically, Jephthah is saying, God has given us this land. He promised it. He'd al he allowed us to enter. He kicked everyone else out so that we could take over the land. And even though we're fighting over it right now, I believe that God intends for us to have this land, so I am not afraid to fight you Ammonites. And after this interaction— the Bible says the Spirit of God fell on Jephthah, which in the context of Judges basically means that he becomes empowered to fight, to battle. And Jephthah defeats the Ammonites and saves Gilead, this portion of Israel. And you can almost imagine the confetti comes down, the fireworks go off, and he gets ushered into the Hall of Fame, right? Just like the Super Bowl, only in biblical times. But there's one wrinkle to this story. Before he goes into battle, Jephthah makes a vow to God. And Jephthah promises, if you give me the victory, let me return home alive. Whatever comes out of my door first, I'll sacrifice it to God as a burnt offering. And when Jephthah returns home after that victory, the first one out of his house is his daughter. And in a way that is absolutely inconceivable for me as a father of two daughters, and frankly should be inconceivable to any human being, the general indication of Scripture is that he keeps his vow, he does what he says he would do, and sacrifices his daughter. So a couple of context notes about this. So the first thing is I say general indication because there is some ambiguity in the passage. Some scholars have proposed alternate interpretations that are a little bit more palatable, that Jephthah's daughter became dedicated to God in some other way, like she never married, for example. But most scholars, both Jewish and Christian, follow the more straightforward reading of the passage, which is Jephthah did, in fact, take his daughter's life. A couple of other notes of context, just so we're clear about this story. The first thing is the Bible makes clear in Deuteronomy 12, for example, that God expressly does not want his people sacrificing their children. Verse 31 in Deuteronomy 12 reads, for example, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, that is, in the way of all the other nations around you, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So this is exactly 
what God would not want Jephthah to do. And some people may be familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac and will be maybe thinking, well, what about that story? And I just want to offer a little bit of context. Most scholars, both Jewish and Christian, would argue that that story of Abraham and Isaac was fundamentally about God teaching this shift. That God was teaching Abraham right from the beginning of his redemptive story. All these other gods have a practice that you may be familiar with of requiring a sacrifice of your firstborn child. But I do not want you to sacrifice in this way. And so I'm going to intervene and I'm going to provide another offering so that you do not have to sacrifice your child so that you will know for all time that this is not the kind of offering that I desire. So Jephthah should never have made this vow. And even after he did, when it became clear that this vow was not something that God intended— he should have broken the vow, right? You don't, if you make a vow that's stupid, you don't just go, oh, that was a stupid vow. I guess I have to keep it. He should have broken it. And even that, there are parts of Scripture that actually allow for that. In Levit Leviticus 5, for example, that basically says, don't keep stupid vows. Do another kind of offering. All right. <laughs> so we're all on the same page here. Okay. So the last thing that I want to note is that there is actually a clear theological context to judges. When you take Judges as a whole and you see these patterns of what um, the Israelites are going through, the main emphasis of Judges is that the people are getting farther and farther away from God. Judges ends with this verse, everyone did as they saw fit. Basically, everyone decided what was right in their own eyes, and they just went ahead and did it, even though what they were doing was farther and farther away from what God wanted them to do. And in this pattern, the de death of Jephthah's daughter, the other atrocities and tragedies that, are, um, that occur all through the book of Judges basically emphasize the way that God's people have gone astray, that there's moral chaos in Israel, that people no longer have an anchor for what is right and wrong. And in fact, you could say that one of the teachings that comes out of Judges is that the measure of how a people are doing, how a nation is doing, how a community is doing, one of the ways that that is best measured is to look at how women are treated in that community. That comes out of Judges. It comes out of the implication of these things. But for all of that, it doesn't really help us with Jephthah showing up in Hebrews 11. It doesn't really help us answer the question of why God would allow it to happen. So right about now, I'm sure someone here is thinking, wait, of all the parts of the Bible that you could have chosen to speak on today, you chose this one? And I did, because I do think that it is important not to sweep the challenging parts of the Bible under the carpet. Amen. Amen. The whole Bible is designed to reveal the heart of God. And so, as I was thinking about why is it important to make sure that we don't just let this go, it actually brought to mind a dynamic that happens in my family life. 
um, that I did get permission from my wife to share. So I've been married for over 16 years now. I have learned at least a little bit. So um, when I married my wife, Mimi, um, I married the funnest person I know. Seriously. So some of you were with us a couple of weeks ago at our marriage retreat. You saw how crazy and enthusiastic and hilarious my wife can get when there's like a team game or something that's going on with team spirit. Um, that's my wife, okay? And one of the fun parts of my wife's personality comes out whenever we go on an outing. We go on a trip, we go camping, we go to the park, anything. When we go somewhere, Mimi loves to pack for any possibility of potential fun that we could have. Okay? So we go out on a trip, and she's packing bags of spare clothes because maybe there's a fountain, maybe there's a stream, maybe we'll get wet and we'll want a change of clothes. All right? Or she'll pack extra flashlights because we're going somewhere, and maybe we'll find a cave and we'll decide to go exploring the cave. We'll need the flashlights. All right. Or she'll pack like a clown costume because maybe the circus will be coming through and we'll want to join the circus. Okay. You think I'm joking, but my wife actually has a full clown costume. All right. <laughs> Don't underestimate pastor's wives have full of surprises. All right. So the other thing that she loves to pack are snacks. Um, I've often wondered whether it's part, it, uh, it comes from the fact that her family comes from the Philippines um, and whether there's this special Filipino affinity to snacks. Um, if there are any families here from the Philippines, you can either confirm that or deny that with me after the gathering. Um, but she loves to pack as many different kinds of snacks as possible because it's part of the fun. It's the choices that you have, popcorn, candy, fruit, sandwiches, whatever it is, she wants to make sure that if someone gets a craving, there's a way to fill it, all right? So now here's the problem. As fun as my wife is, occasionally, occasionally, she finds that coming home and unpacking all the things that she brought to the outing all the clothes, all the equipment, all the snacks, not as fun. It's kind of inconvenient. So every now and then, maybe, a bag just gets left in the corner of our garage, unpacked. Because it's inconvenient to open it, to figure out what's inside, to figure out what to do with it. And it sits there until one day I walk through the garage and then I, and I find it, and I open it, and it hits me, and it's painful. And then, of course, I can't help but ask the husband question, which is, honey, did you mean to leave this half-eaten sandwich in the garage for like the last four weeks that now looks like a giant ball of fuzz? Now, I'm not expecting a real answer to that question. I know it's a stupid question. Yes, I'm asking it just because I think maybe it creates a little bit of a chance that it doesn't happen again. And, and yes, in preaching this message, I realize that I just need to own for all the fun that my wife brings into our family, I just need to accept that, that that's my job to deal with that bag. So I own that, all right. The thing is, the things that are ignored in that bag don't go away on their own. Leaving them there, forgetting about them, doesn't make things better. It just becomes nastier 
over time. And for me, the presence of Jephthah in Hebrews chapter 11 is like that sandwich. On the one hand, it'd be easy just to read through Hebrews chapter 11, see all these names, have positive feelings about them, think about them as heroes, as people that are in the hall of fame and faith. Anything that's a little bit challenging, just sweep it under the rug, ignore it, and move on. But it doesn't make Jephthah and Jephthah's story go away. And the questions that we have about Jephthah will keep on coming up as we go through life, as we live through this broken world that is full of pain and suffering, unless we deal with it, unless we talk, tackle Jephthah head-on, these questions are going to keep on coming up, and it's going to be more and more difficult for us to figure out what is God doing in the middle of it. So I want to be honest to say this is a big conversation. We're just going to be starting it today. Our series leading up to Easter that starts next week um, is going to be looking at the book of Job and all the questions that come up from that book about suffering and how we engage with it. But we have a chance today to not just skip over Jephthah in Hebrews 11 and leave him behind. So I'm going to focus on three questions today. First, why did God allow this to happen to Jephthah's daughter? Why? Why, God? Why, do you, why did you allow this to happen? The second is why didn't it disqualify Jephthah from being on the list in Hebrews 11? Why did he have to be included? And third, what can we possibly learn from this that helps us in our relationship with God? So let's start with the first question. Why? Why, God? Why did God allow this to happen? So I think this is a very fair question. I think it's a question that we ask about our lives all the time. Because the frustrating thing is, as we take a look at Jephthah's, um, at this account in Jephthah's life, God could have changed the outcome in so many different ways, right? God could have prevented Jephthah from ever thinking about this idea of having the vow. Um, God could have made sure that Jephthah was killed during the battle so the vow could never have been fulfilled. And certainly, God could have caused something else to come out of the door when Jephthah was returning home. And even after all of that happened, couldn't God have shown up in a dream or a vision to tell Jephthah, what you vowed was stupid, don't do it, change your mind? So don't we wrestle with the same questions in our lives today? I, I think about the things that I read in the news all the time, the ways that my heart just broke over the account of uh, the abuse for the U.S. Um, women's Olympic gymnastics team and um, just the dozens of women that were affected by this cycle of abuse and thinking about couldn't something have happened in that circumstance of events that could have prevented all those years of harm for people who were just trying to follow their dreams? And don't we wrestle with those questions when tragedy affects our life directly? When we think about, if only the timing could have changed. If only I made a different decision. Why did this outcome have to happen? And we wish that God would intervene more directly to spare us the pain and brokenness of this world. So God does have an answer for this. It comes in multiple parts. This first part isn't often exactly what we wish for, but it certainly is true when we take an honest look at the world. The reality is, part of, the, part of what it means 
that humanity is created in the image of God means that we have free will to make choices. That those choices can either please God and bless others, or they can wound God and harm others. But all of the choices that we make have consequences. They have consequences in our own lives. They have consequences in the lives of those around us. And God allows those consequences to happen, as painful and as terrible as they sometimes are. But that's not the end of the answer. There is another part of how God responds to the question. And what God demonstrates is that at the same time as the first part of the answer is true, at the same time when you look across history and when you look across our lives today, God is working. God is working to heal this world. God is working to redeem this world. God is working to express his love and to make things different, but it comes from a direction that we don't often expect. So part of this we can hold on to and know that it's true because we can look at Jesus' prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prays, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus prays that, he acknowledges, you know what? Not everything that happens on earth is God's will, is God's intent. Jesus wouldn't be praying for God's will to be done on earth unless there were things that were happening that needed that prayer to be lifted up. But the fact that Jesus prays it means that he is certain that God cares, that it's worth crying out to God because God desires to come into this world and make a difference. And he makes a difference in two ways. He makes a difference. He's working in this world through Jesus and through people following Jesus. So we actually see this right in the passage um, in Hebrews 11 and the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. So we read the passage where these people from Judges are mentioned, and then the writer talks about women who've experienced miracles, but then others who have experienced great suffering, torture, mistreatment, persecution. And then we have these verses that start with verse 39 in Hebrews chapter 11. All these people were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, at the beginning of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The people in Hebrews 11 weren't perfect. They lived in a world that wasn't perfect. They longed for a, a world that was redeemed, that was um, more reflective of God's intent. But they didn't receive what had been promised since God had planned something better, something that required them to be with us, to be together following Jesus. 
So this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The answer to the question of why isn't an explanation of why something had to happen. But instead, God provides a plan of redemption. One that depends entirely on Jesus because Jesus was the one who endured the cross. Jesus is the one who defeated death. Jesus is the one who rose with all authority. So when you focus on Jesus, you see the one who conquered death. You see the one who is able to catch Jephthah's daughter as she leaves this life. To catch others who are like Jephthah's daughter. Jesus is the one who is able to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death and say that death is not the end of how God has the last word. This is what Jesus did on the cross. And then the second part of the answer shows that God's redemptive plan doesn't just address the reality of death, but it also addresses the reality of the injustice and suffering of this world. And that part of the plan depends on us following Jesus. When we run the race with perseverance, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we allow Jesus to be the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, then we all together as a community that reflects who God is, allows God to do the work of redeeming the world, of healing the world through us. That's what it means that Jesus is the pioneer. Jesus went first. He went first to establish the authority to reconcile the world. He went first to overcome the power of death. And now as we're following Jesus, we follow in the work that he has begun. There's other translations that talk about Jesus as the author of our faith. And it means that Jesus started writing the story of redemption, and now that story is being told and written through our lives as we engage with him by faith. When God's people follow God's divine direction to stand up for justice, to stand up for the poor, to stand up for the the oppressed, to stand against evil, to build up homes that have been destroyed by fire, to restore dignity to broken people. We are fulfilling God's plan for redemption. We're making the world the way that God intended. Bill Hybels famously said, the local church is the hope of the world. And that's us following Jesus with faith, with courage, with sacrifice, and allowing God to work through us. I know that there are some parts of this answer that aren't fully satisfying. You know, for some of us, we hit Jephthah's story, and there's a part of us that just makes us want to hit the eject button, to feel like this is the reason why I have such a hard time believing. But let me just say, if we're tempted to walk away from God because of Jephthah's story, we still have no solution for the Jephthahs of this world. If there's anything that the last hundred years of human history have shown us, it's that the optimism of human progress, whether through technology or education or ethics, 
is virtually powerless in the face of innate human evil and brokenness. Two world wars in the last hundred years, the Holocaust, multiple genocides. For all of our technological advances, we're living in Silicon Valley after all, we have additional problems. Income inequality is not moving in the direction that we would want. We face catastrophic potential outcomes like potential nuclear conflict, climate change. And though the church has been afflicted by the same human flaws as every other organization and institution across history, it is also undeniable that the main thrust of redemption for humanity has come through the church. The things that we take for granted today in our world, universal human rights and the value, the equal value of every life, uh, the abolition movement, that every life deserves an opportunity for freedom and flourishing, the concern for the poor, the values for education and literacy for all people, men and women, boys and girls, the initiatives for humanitarian and medical care across the world a huge percentage of them can be traced directly back, not just to churches, but to individual followers of Jesus, ordinary people like you and me that were seeking to live out their faith in redemptive ways. So let's return to Jephthah. Why is he included in Hebrews 11? And let me walk through it this way. So, let's take Jephthah, and let's decide that what he did is just too hard for us to swallow. He just doesn't belong in God's story. And so, we decide we just have to discard him. And then we take a look at some of the other people in Hebrews chapter 11, we get to David. Well, David slept with his best friend's wife and then killed one of his best friends to cover it up. He's probably got to be discarded too from God's story. And then we get to Abraham, also in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham lied about his wife said that she was his sister instead of his wife, allowed his wife to be taken into some other man's harem, then proceeded to sleep with his servant, had a child, and then when that got inconvenient, basically left them out in the desert to die. Better discard him too. We got Abraham's son, Isaac, who did many of the same things that Abraham did, especially the whole wife and harem thing. So we don't want him either. We got Jacob, who basically was the first embezzler of the Bible, cheated his twin brother out of his birthright through fraud. Not someone we want as a part of God's history. We got a whole bunch of other people here as well. We got Moses, who also killed a man in his story. We got Gideon, who basically left the faith at the end of his life. For all that God had did through his life, he was one of the deliverers. At the end of his life, he basically decided, I think I want to follow other gods instead. 
we better discard him as well. The problem is, when we go through and we discard all those people, what happens when we get to us? Are we worthy of being a part of God's story? When I think about my own life, I think about things that I could probably excuse or justify in different ways. I'm sure Jephthah had his own justifications as well. But when it comes down to it, when I think about the parts of my life where I have deep and hidden regrets, wish I'd made other choices, parts of my life that I feel shame about, the parts of my life that if they were written into the pages of Scripture or if they were displayed for others to see, would probably disqualify me in their eyes. Am I worthy? I think all of us are aware of those moments and those choices in our lives. The amazing thing about the Bible is that it doesn't hide the shame and the brokenness of the people that are a part of God's story. The reason why we know the backstories of Jephthah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses is because the Bible tells them front and centered in an unvarnished way. And I don't think the right way to look at Hebrews 11 is as a hall of fame of faith. If it really was a hall of fame, I can tell you that there are people missing on there. Uh, Probably the women most prominently, Hannah and Ruth, Esther and Deborah, should be on that list. But I don't think the main thrust of Hebrews 11 is people that we should regard as heroes and model after. I think the main thrust of Hebrews 11 is that it demonstrates the amazing capacity of God to incorporate imperfect people, even people that we have major problems with, into his story and his plan of redemption. Even people like you and me. It leaves room for us. We don't need to hide our flaws and pretend that we have it all together. We don't need to excuse our flaws and minimize them either. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. His grace gives us the freedom to acknowledge where we fall short, to repent for the things that we've done wrong, to grow in our character, to strive to honor God in all that we do. But knowing that God never gives up on us, knowing that God never crumples us up and throws us away and says, you're no longer worthy of being a part of my story. Knowing that God is writing us into his story of redemption allows us to extend grace to ourselves, to be honest with us and still open our hearts to accept the love and grace of God. And then as we do that, to also see the people around us in a different way to extend that same grace to them. And we enter into God's story as whole people, the good parts of us and the bad parts of us, the parts that we're proud of and the parts that we're ashamed of. We can come before God entirely as we are and know that God accepts us and loves us and comes into our lives. So ultimately, that's what we learn from Hebrews 11 and 12. We learn foremost 
that the only true hero that we have, the only true hero of the church is Jesus. It's not any of these other people. We're not designed to worship them. The only person we worship is Jesus. And all these other people in Hebrews chapter 11 are not heroes, but they're witnesses. They witness the power, they're witnesses to the power of faith that allows us to enter into God's story, but they're also witnesses to the reality of all of our desperate need for God's grace and mercy. And then the second thing that we learn is that when we fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him, we become a part of God's plan to redeem and heal this world. The person that was in my mind as I was thinking um, and thinking about how to close this message was John Newton. John Newton was a captain in the 1800s. He did multiple voyages as a slave trader from West Africa to the West Indies. As a slave trader um, overseeing human cargo, he was responsible for the deaths of countless men and women, boys and girls. In the time that he was a captain, he had an experience where God rescued him and delivered him, saved his life. And from that moment, he started to look at all that he was doing differently. He stopped trading slaves. He wrote an entire account of his life story and offered it to the abolition movement, became a part of the abolition movement. And he also wrote a hymn that has come down to us through the centuries called Amazing Grace. And these were the words that he wrote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see.